0: some of the most challenging and changing things that Jesus has done for us is he's delivered us, he has redeemed us, he has forgiven us, and he has transferred us into his kingdom. These are really four of the most profound truths that you will see throughout Scripture, things that just keep coming up as the foundation of what we believe and one of the most important things that Jesus has done. And you know, we're going to see all four of these wonderful truths in just two verses. Uh, in verses 13 and 14 here in chapter 1 of Colossians, we have these four wonderful truths about Jesus all brought together. And, you know, as I put together this outline, I only reference one of these things because I wanted to keep the outline more simplistic. But if you really wanted to go deeper uh, in the outline, you could have uh, the outline looking more like this. So it would say that Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency is declared in his deliverance and redemption and forgiveness and in transferring us into his kingdom. Now, the fact that Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 speak of these four vital truths, really, by many commentators, many scholars, uh, I feel, you know, these are two of the most significant verses that you're going to find in the Bible because of how much they have packed in to just two verses. The things that they deal with and speak of are so profound and so important to what we believe to what Jesus has done for us. And so since there's so much here this morning, we're just going to dig into these two verses, focus our time on them. Uh, and so we're going to look at the meaning of what these four wonderful things are that Jesus has done for us. We're going to look at what they reveal about Jesus. We're going to look about uh, what they have done for us. And then hopefully once we have a good understanding of these four wonderful things, we grasp them Then we're going to look at, you know, how can we respond to this? How should we, you know, take these things and put them into practice uh, and live things out uh, in our own life? How should they impact us? And so I'm super excited to go through these two verses. They're definitely some of my favorites in all of Scripture. Uh, I know there's a lot that we can learn from them, a lot we can be encouraged through by them. And so let's start with reading them and see what the Lord wants to speak to us this morning. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The first thing that we're told that Jesus did for us is He delivered us from the power of darkness. Now the Greek word here, translated "delivered means to rescue, to draw, or snatch uh, one from danger. So the Greek word was most commonly used to speak of someone who is snatching someone else from some dangerous thing. You kind of have the the thought in mind of a parent who's next to their child and their child's about to run into the middle of the road where cars are coming and could run them over and kill them. And and the parent snatches that child and brings them back to themselves to to keep them from the danger of the road. And it's just someone seeing danger, seeing the person about to enter danger and, and snatching them back to deliver them from the danger that they are in. And so this is what Paul is saying that Jesus did for you and I. That Jesus saw the danger that we were in. He snatched us out of that danger in order to rescue us from the danger. And Paul tells us what the danger is. What is it that you and I needed to be rescued from? He calls it the power of darkness. Now, this is a great term that you see throughout Scripture, and it really is referring to three different things, all things that are horrible things that you don't want to have power over you. The first um, thing that the power of darkness speaks of is really the, the power of Satan and his demons who try to keep us in darkness, who try to keep us from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we're told, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, But against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so when Paul talks about the spiritual battle that we're in, he brings out the reality that we're fighting this spiritually dark, the powers of darkness, speaking of Satan and his demons, that come against us to try and destroy our lives. And before we accepted Christ, the reality is we were under the power of darkness. Satan was our master. We were under his power. And you and I had no power within ourselves to be freed from Satan. We didn't have the strength. We didn't have the capability of saying, you know what, I'm going to defeat him. I'm going to free myself from the bondage that I have of him being my master. So unless someone else came and delivered us from the power of Satan, we would not be delivered because we couldn't deliver ourselves. So first, the power of darkness refers to the power of Satan and his demons. But we're also under another power of darkness the one that we struggle with every single day, and that is the power of sin. In Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also... We also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. In Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once darkness, speaking of the darkness of sin that we lived for. That was us. You know, we were under the power of darkness, speaking of the power of sin in our life. We were slaves to sin. It had power over us, a power that you and I continued to give into. And no matter how hard we tried to be good, no matter how hard we tried to escape the power of sin in our life, it was futile because we couldn't do it. We couldn't be good enough to get away from it. We couldn't escape the sin in our life. We were born sinners with no hope to escape it in and of ourselves. So unless someone else delivered us from the power of sin, we're going to be stuck there forever. So the first thing that power of darkness refers to is Satan and his demons. The second thing is sin. And the third thing connects with the second thing, and that deals with the consequences. There's another darkness, a power of darkness that you and I are in, and it deals with the consequences of our sin. And it's actually two things, death and hell. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And this is speaking both of physical death but also more significantly, spiritual death. The fact that you and I, if we do not accept Jesus Christ, the punishment of our death, the judgment that you and I deserve is an eternity separated from God in hell. This is the worst part of the darkness that that we're under before we accept Christ. It's the, the worst part because it deals with the consequences of sin. We have death and hell that are power over us. And just like We have no ability to free ourselves from the power of sin. We have no ability to free ourselves from the power of Satan. We had no ability to free ourselves from the power of death, from the power of hell. That's where each one of us were headed. And unless someone else came to deliver us from that path, that's where each one of us would have gone. So before accepting Jesus, you and I were under the power of darkness, the power of Satan and his demons, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell. And really, these are four of the worst possible things to be under the power of. We had no ability. I want you just to think about that. We couldn't get ourselves away from this. We couldn't escape this. There was nothing in us. We didn't have the strength to overcome this. This was just us, hopeless, under this power with no ability to get out from under it. But Jesus was the one who delivered us from that power. He saw that we were in danger. He snatched us away from that. He rescued us from the power of darkness that each one of us was in. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross and took our sin. He took the judgment of our sin upon himself. He died in our place. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer the power of Satan, to conquer the power of sin, to conquer the power of death. He did that so that we could be overcomers in those things, so that that would no longer have power Over us when we place our trust in who He is and what He has done. Colossians 2:15 says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over it. I love this. You know, Jesus' death on the cross, he disarmed the enemy that we have. He disarmed the power of Satan and his demons over us to give us the ability to no longer be under that power. We can be free from that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Romans 6, 17, and 18 says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When you and I put our trust in Jesus, we went from that slavery to sin. We were bound to sin. It had power over us. We couldn't escape it, but yet we put our trust in Jesus. And now we go from slaves to sin, to slaves to righteousness, slaves to Jesus. He gives us freedom from the slavery that we were in. First Corinthians 15, 55, and 56 says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we put our trust in Jesus, death and hell no longer have a sting because they no longer have power over us. They're no longer going to conquer us because Jesus has conquered them. And when we put our trust in what he has done, it enables us to conquer them as well. So Jesus has done everything necessary to deliver us from the power of darkness, from the power of Satan, from the power of sin, from the power of death and hell. But in order for us to receive that deliverance, we must put our trust in who Jesus is, that he is God and what he has done, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he rose from the dead to conquer Satan and sin and death. So the first wonderful thing that Jesus did for us is he delivers us from the power of darkness. He delivers us, from those powers that were over us, sin and Satan and death and hell. Now being delivered from such a horrible darkness is a wonderful thing, but Jesus didn't just stop there. He takes it a step further and does another amazing thing for us. The second thing that Jesus did for us is at the end of verse 13, he conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now for some of you, their translation says transferred us instead of conveyed. Transferred is a more accurate translation to the original Greek. This Greek word means uh, to transfer or remove from one place to another. This word was mainly used to speak of uh, the displacement of a conquered people from one land to Another. So, when one empire conquered another empire, they would take the people who lived where they were conquered, and then take them to the conquered land, and so they would move them from one place to another. William Barclay describes this Greek word like this: This is a word with a special use. It's an ancient, oh, in the ancient world, when one empire won a victory over another, it was the custom to take the population of the defeated country and transfer it, lock, stock, and barrel. To the conquered land. Thus, the people of the northern kingdom were taken away to Assyria, and the people of the southern kingdom were taken away to Babylon. So, Paul is saying that God has transferred the Christian to his own kingdom. You know, we would use this Greek word to describe a, a fireman who rescues someone from a burning building. The fireman removes that person from the danger of the burning building and then places them somewhere else where they can be safe, where, you know, they're no longer going to be in that danger. And so they've been translated uh, from, transferred far from the dangerous place to the place that is safe. So by using this Greek word, Paul is saying that we have been removed from the power of darkness, but it didn't just stop there. God didn't say, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you victory over this. No longer is Satan, sin, death, and hell going to have power over you. I'm going to remove you from where you were. The power and the kingdom of darkness, and I'm going to place you, I'm going to transfer you to another kingdom. The kingdom of the Son of His love. You know, this is such an amazing truth that God didn't just leave us where we were, but says, no, I got something even better. I'm going to move you to my own kingdom. You know, I love this terminology—the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's a speaking of the kingdom of Jesus, but yet every time you see the Father in the New Testament Gospels speaking about the Son, He's always saying, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased." And I think this is a great, you know, just terminology here—the kingdom of the Son of His love, just speaking of the kingdom of Jesus, who is the loved Son by the father but even more important than the title being great is that the kingdom's great. Why is the kingdom great? Because Jesus the king is great and that is the kingdom that you and I are transferred into. Now if you put Jesus kingdom and all the blessings and all the freedoms that you have with it next to the kingdom of darkness and Satan as the master and sin as the thing you're enslaved to and death and hell as the consequences and and you put them next to one another I'm sure that many people would say yes I would prefer the Jesus's kingdom over the kingdom of darkness. And yeah, I think that's the one that I'll choose. But you know, that's not how it works. We can say, hey, I'm leaving the, the kingdom of darkness and I'm going to Jesus's kingdom. But we were slaves. Slaves to Satan, slaves to sin, death, and hell. We had no capacity to get up and leave and go. So we had no way of getting to the kingdom Of Jesus, no access to his kingdom, no way of getting out of the kingdom that we were in. The only way any of us were going to be able to leave that kingdom of darkness and go to Jesus' kingdom was if he made it possible for us to do it, if he was the one who transferred us from one kingdom to the other. Now, something important to note about this Greek word here translated transferred is in the aorist tense, which means it's speaking of an immediate transference from one place. To another, It's not this slow thing. It's just, it's immediate. It happens right away. And it's a wonderful thing for us because there is an immediate transference from the kingdom of darkness that we were once in to the kingdom of Jesus. And it takes place the moment that you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ. When we make that commitment to trust Jesus, boom, right away, we have been transported from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus said in John five twenty four. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. The moment that we believed in Jesus, immediately we transferred from the power of Satan, from the power of sin, death, and hell, and we were transferred to Jesus' kingdom. We're noticed, we're told there's everlasting life. There's no judgment. There's no hell. We pass from death to life. So when you place your faith in Jesus, you're not just delivered from the power of darkness, you're also given the wonderful blessing of being transferred into Jesus's kingdom. You know, I remember when I was younger, I only had $10 in my bank account, and sometimes as I've gotten older, my Bank account has reached that uh, number as well, but I remember thinking, you know, it'd be so great if one day I could just get all of Bill Gates' money, the billions that he has in his bank account, and just transfer it over into my bank account. Wouldn't that be wonderful? we go from ten bucks to ten billion, and you know, I always thought that would be so wonderful. If somehow I could just have that transfer happen. How great my life would be! But you know what is even better than billions of dollars transferred into your bank accounts? and that's to be transferred out of the power of darkness into Jesus' kingdom. Because when that transfer happens, you go from Satan to Jesus. You go from sin to salvation. You go from death to life. You go from hell to heaven. Far better than any monetary thing that we can get in this life is what Jesus did for us when he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to his own. It's one of the greatest blessings that we've been given. We have gone from the worst things possible to the best possible. So the first wonderful thing Jesus did for us is he delivered us from the power of darkness, the power of sin and Satan, death and hell. The second thing Jesus did for us is he transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He transferred us from the power of darkness to his own kingdom. The third thing that Jesus does for us is in verse 14 we're told, In whom we have redemption through his blood. Jesus has redeemed us through his blood. The Greek word translated redeem means to buy back by payment of a ransom. To buy back by payment of a ransom. Now this Greek word was mainly used to speak of someone who would pay money for a prisoner of war or who paid money to buy back slaves. In the Roman era of the time, you know, when Rome would fight and they would dominate and conquer different lands, you know, they would, you know, allow some of the soldiers to live and they'd bring them back. And, you know, sometimes they would put them in the Colosseum and, you know, have them fight and die. And sometimes they would put them into slavery. But, you know, they also would allow the country that was defeated to buy some of those soldiers back. You want your soldiers? Well, fine, you can pay us for each one of them, and so we have them, they're our slaves, we conquered them, but if you want them, then you can redeem them, you can buy them back from us, and when you give us enough money, we'll allow them to go back home, and you guys can have them again, and so that was one way this word was used, of buying back soldiers that lost a battle and were taken to the enemy's country. But also in the Roman Empire, when you couldn't pay your taxes or you couldn't pay something else that you owed, you know, it wasn't just, well, okay, now you're in debt. They say, well, we're going to put you into slavery, and you'll pay it off that way. Uh, and so you were taken from being a free person, and then you were enslaved, and oftentimes the debt was so high that you would never be able to get out. And so the only way that you could get out is if your family somehow were to raise enough money, get enough money to pay your debt and buy you back out of slavery. And so that was another way that this Greek word was used, of buying someone who was put into slavery back out of slavery uh, with a purchased price. As we already looked at before, accepting Jesus, we were under the power of darkness. Sin, Satan, had taken us captive. We were enslaved to it. Now the soldiers who were taken captive and the people who were put into slavery, they were in that position and they, they couldn't redeem themselves. There was nothing they could do to get themselves out of that position. Someone else had to buy them out of captivity and slavery. And the same was true for us as we were enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan, death, and hell, that there was nothing that we could do. We couldn't pay enough. We couldn't do enough good works to say, hey, this will now pay the price to free me. There was nothing that we could give, nothing that we could offer that could be enough, that could be high enough price to get us out of the situation we were in. There was only one price that could be paid. and There was only one person who could pay it. First Peter 1 Verses 18 and 19 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. Peter says, you know what? You weren't redeemed. You weren't bought back with silver or gold. There was no amount of money that could buy you out of what you were in. Your slavery to sin and your master Satan, there was no way that you were going to get away from that with all the gold in the world, with all the silver in the world. That is not what was able to buy you out of your situation. And he goes on to say as well, there's another thing that didn't buy you out. Your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers. This is speaking about trying to be redeemed by your good works. Uh, well, I'll live good works. Or I'll do the law. I'll do these things. I'll, I'll do the traditions. And that will get me out of it. A mindset that many people think today, my good works will somehow get me away from, you know, this slavery that I have, this master that's over me, this power that dominates me. Somehow I can work my way from it. But our works can never be valuable enough. All the money in the world can never be valuable enough. And Peter says, those weren't the things that redeemed you. What redeemed you is the most valuable thing of all. And that is the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish, without spot. Jesus, the sinless lamb, the one who sacrificed himself for us. That was the only price that God would accept. No works, no money, nothing else. There is only one thing that God would accept, and that is Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Tony Garland wrote this, A bloodless gospel is no gospel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The redeemed of this age are the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Redemption provides for the forgiveness of sin, that which separates man from God and was made possible through his blood. This is the reason why Christ's blood is said to be precious. We keep coming back to the blood, communion remember the blood. Why? Because that was the price. Jesus shed blood was the price that was necessary for us to be redeemed, for us to be bought back from slavery to sin and death and hell. No other price could do it. And this is so important for us to remember because we're going to come across many people in this world who think there is a price that they can pay. There is something that they can do to get right with God. There's something that they can do to deal with their sins. There's something that they can do to overcome the darkness, to overcome what they're involved in. And there's only one thing it has nothing to do with them. It's nothing that they can do. They have to put their trust in what Jesus has already done for them. They need to recognize, no, there is only one thing that God would accept, and that is the death and shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But thank God that he loved us so much that he did send Jesus to pay our ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, hey, the main reason that I came, I didn't come, you know, to sit on the earthly throne and to be served. I came for a different purpose this time. And my purpose was to give my life a ransom for many, to buy people back with my own life. That would be the price. And the reason Jesus was willing to pay that ultimate price is because of his love for us. I mean, that's a price that is pretty steep. All right, the most expensive thing, the most valuable thing that Jesus has to offer is his own life. And he says, I'm willing to lay it down. And we know that it was because of love. Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. What Jesus did is the greatest demonstration of love there is. I'm willing to give myself. That is the payment. I will sacrifice myself in order to buy you back because I love you. And the only way that payment is going to free you from slavery, the only way that payment is going to free you from captivity, is if you put your trust in Jesus. If you don't, then it does you no good. It doesn't have any value to do. It doesn't help you. It only helps you when you accept what Jesus has done, when you place your trust in it. John 3.18 says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but... He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the first wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us is he's delivered us from the power of darkness. The second thing is he has transferred us into the kingdom of his Son of his love. The third thing that Jesus did for us is he redeemed us through his blood. He bought us back from that slavery to sin, from that master Satan, from the consequence of death and hell, and the price that he paid was his own life. You know, sometimes we miss this reality because we we tell people, hey, you know, salvation's a free gift. And we think, well, free is cheap. No, it wasn't cheap. It's free to us, but it cost Jesus his life. It's the most valuable thing there is. So don't think because it's free, it's not valuable. God gave what was most valuable to purchase you. Why? Because you're so valuable to him. He was willing to give his life because he loves you and believes that you are valuable enough to sacrifice himself for. The fourth thing that Jesus did for us is at the end of verse 14, we're told the forgiveness of sins. Jesus forgave us all of our sins. The Greek word translated forgiveness means to pardon, to let something go as if it had never been committed, a remission of the penalty. This was used in a court of law as a legal term that either a judge or a king would have the opportunity to pardon a criminal, to pardon a guilty person they've committed a crime, and yet they had the power to say, you know what, I am going to let you go free. Even though you are guilty, I am going to pardon you and allow you to go free uh, um, and not have any consequence or judgment to what you did. Now, all of us are guilty of crimes. All of us are sinful people, and we stand before a judge. I'm sure we all say, hey, you know, I would love to be forgiven. I would love to be pardoned. If I'm going to you know, break the law and stand before a judge, how great it would be if the judge says, you know what, we're just going to let you go on this one. I'm just going to pardon you. Nothing's going to happen to you. There's not going to be any consequence for this behavior. This is what most people are hoping for when they stand before God, the judge of the world. I'm hoping that when I get there, you know, that he's going to pardon me. And I think that he'd be willing to because my good is going to outweigh my bad. I've done so many good things that that surely God, when he sees all this good stuff, yeah, he'll see the bad stuff as well. But he'll think, man, you've done so many good things. I'm going to pardon that bad stuff. And I'm not going to judge you. And there's not going to be any consequence eternally for your sin. That's the mindset that many people have and that they're hoping for. But here's the problem. We're told that God is a just judge. And if you're just, you have to punish sin. So how can a just judge pardon sinful people? How can he say, you know what, you know what, I'm just gonna let it go? Well, wait a second, if you just let it go, that's not justice. It's not justice if there's not some kind of consequence, there's not some kind of judgment for someone who's done something? If someone came and murdered one of your family members and stood before a judge and you're in the courtroom and you're waiting for justice and the judge said, you know what, we're going to let them go free. We're not going to do anything to this person. I'm just going to pardon them. You wouldn't feel like justice happened. You'd feel like you've been robbed of justice. This person deserves to be punished. Well, a just judge can't just allow sin to go unpunished. And so how is it possible for God, when we stand before him as a just judge, to pardon us? How is it possible for him to forgive? How is it possible for him not to pour his wrath upon us that each one of us deserve? Well, this is why what Jesus did on the cross is so important. And when we speak of Jesus taking our sin upon himself, he also took something far more important than just our sin. He took the judgment of God that our sin deserves. And so as Jesus was there on the cross... Not only were our sins placed upon him, but God judged Jesus in our place. And the reason that is so significant and important is because now God can still be just. Because the judgment has been given. I can pardon you. Why? Because I've already judged the sin. I'm not letting it go. I'm not saying that there's not going to be a judgment. No, I've already judged it, but it just wasn't on you. I judged it on my son. And I did it on my son, so I wouldn't have to do it on you. So I now have the capacity to pardon you and still be a just judge. It'd be like standing in a courtroom with God as your judge. And God has just opened up book after book after book of all your sins. And he says, you are guilty and your punishment is death. And there's nothing you can do. You are guilty and you do deserve death. You do deserve hell. And then Jesus stands up and says, you know what? I'll die in His place. And then God says, well, since Jesus is going to die in your place, you're pardoned. You're free to go. The punishment has been placed on Jesus and I'm still just. But yet you now are the one who's been free from having to suffer that punishment yourself. The only way that you and I can benefit from what Jesus has done. The only way that we can receive the pardon from God to escape the judgment that we deserve is to put our trust in Jesus. So he says, I've done it all. Now all I ask of you is to put your trust in me. And if you put your trust in me, you will be pardoned. You will be forgiven. But if you reject me, you reject what I've done. Well, judgment's going to have to come. And since you're not accepting the judgment that I've done, you're going to have to be judged for what you have done. There's a wonderful promise the Bible gives us that if we put our trust in Jesus, if we'll ask for his forgiveness, First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we have a God who promises us so many wonderful things, and this is one of the great promises in Scripture that if you will confess, if you trust in Jesus and you come and confess your sin, God says, I will always be faithful. Not, well, you know what, if it's really big, sorry. If you've done it too many times, no. Always will I be faithful to forgive you and cleanse you. There'll be never a time when I'm not willing to do that for you. How horrible it would be to not know if God would actually forgive you. To live your life with just a hope. Maybe when I stand before him, he might possibly do that. But you know what? There's a lot of religions that are in that place. David Pawson said this, I have talked to the most devout Muslims who pray five times a day, have journeyed to Mecca, have fasted during Ramadan, and are more devout than many Christians. But when I ask, do you know if your sins are forgiven? They've said, we don't. We just have to hope for the best. How horrible that would be. I mean, you're devout. You're doing everything that your religion says that you should do. But at the end of the day, you have no confidence that you will be forgiven. You have no confidence that the God that I serve forgives me for what I have done. But in Christianity, that's not the case. When we put our trust in Jesus, we can have complete confidence that our sins are forgiven because of the work he has done on the cross to make that possible. So in these two wonderful chapters, we're given four amazing things that Jesus has done for us. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, the power of Satan and sin and death and hell. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love, transferred us from the power of darkness to his own kingdom. He redeemed us through his blood, bought us out of captivity and slavery, and he forgave us our sin. And the reason he was able to do this is because he took it upon himself. He took the judgment upon himself, so that we could be forgiven. Now, as we look at each of these four things, we realize you and I had no strength, no ability, no capacity to bring this about ourselves. We couldn't have this end result. We couldn't have these wonderful things in our own strength and our own ability. We couldn't deliver ourselves. We couldn't transfer ourselves. We couldn't redeem ourselves. We couldn't forgive ourselves. It's only possible because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so the question I think that we really need to ask is, what should I do in response to what Jesus has done for me? As I look at these four amazing things that he has done, well, what should be my response to that? Well, the first thing that all of us should do, if we've never done it before, is place our faith in who Jesus is, that he is God, and what he has done, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he rose from the dead and conquered Satan and sin and death. But for those of us who say, yeah, well, I've done that. I've made that response. Is that it? Is that the only way I I need to respond to these four wonderful things that Jesus has done for me? Well, we could spend hours looking at ways in which we respond the appreciation, the thanks, the the love. But you know what? I think it would be great for us just to look at four things that connect with the four things that Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to finish with Four challenges of how we as believers should respond to the fact that Jesus delivered us, that Jesus transferred us, that Jesus has redeemed us, that he has forgiven us. And what can we do? So since Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness, let's do what Romans six eleven through 13 tells us. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So the first thing here is since Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness, the power of Satan and sin and death and hell, our response should be, don't go back to living for those things. He sacrificed his life to to deliver you out of that. And so often we put ourselves back in those places. We go back for those things. We've been freed from Satan's mastery. We've been freed from being a slave to sin. And too often we just allow ourselves and choose to go back to the things that Jesus has delivered us from. And I love this verse. Don't present your members, a choice that you make, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but instead present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. When you remember and you think, man, I'm so grateful for your deliverance, Jesus, show it by not going back to the things that he gave his life to sacrifice so that you could get away from. I read an article that told about an abandoned building set on fire and you know it was just mainly used by drug addicts. No one lived there. It was you know not in a very good condition and so it's burning, and the fire department comes and as they go in, they see you know a few people who are in there, and you know they bring them out and they place them in a in a safe place and this place is just burning up and going up and you know they can't get the fire out and all of a sudden, one of the people that they rescue, who was a drug addict, is screaming. I left my cocaine, I left my cocaine, he's running back in and they're trying to stop him and they can't stop him and he never comes back out. He burns alive in there. And the whole article was just about, you know, how crazy, why why go back to that? But yet that's kind of a picture of how we are so often. Jesus is like, hey, I've delivered you from this horrible danger. I've rescued you. I placed you in my own kingdom. And oftentimes we're so stupid that we, oh wait, I want that back. And we run back into the danger. We run back to try to get hold of the sin that we've been free from. And all of a sudden, the consequences and all the things that go with it. Now we have to face because we weren't willing to stay away. The second thing that we should do in response to what Jesus has done for us. is Since he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to his glorious kingdom. Let's do what Psalm 145, 10 through 13 tells us. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Since Jesus has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Himself, we should respond by telling others about it. Now that we've been transferred, now that we know, well... It is so much better in this kingdom than it was in that. The kingdom of darkness was horrible, but the kingdom of light is amazing. And we know how to get from one to the other. We know that it's only through trust in Jesus. And, and we have that wonderful information. Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's not be happy. Hey, we're in the kingdom of Jesus. Great, we're so happy and we're just going to have fun when yet we have so many people that we know are still in the kingdom of darkness and we could tell them about the kingdom of heaven. We could tell them about how to get there. We could tell them about how wonderful it is. Recently, my family and I were listening to an audio book on the Underground Railroad. And something I thought was interesting was many of the slaves who escaped the South and they made it all the way up to Canada and they finally got their freedom. They would send word and letters and things back to those who were still enslaved with just how wonderful it was. You know, we don't have a master anymore. We're our own masters. We're completely free. You know, we're working our own land and it was just some a glorious thing for them to no longer be in slavery to a master here. They've now been put into a wonderful place in Canada and the news started to spur these uh, slaves in the south to say, "We want to get out of here." We want to escape our masters here, and we want to go to where we can be free. We want to go to this place that's so wonderful. And hearing that news caused many more slaves to take the daring journey through the Underground Railroad and make it all the way to Canada. But the thing I like about that is there's just something in which, you know, oftentimes people who are in the kingdom of darkness, they don't realize there's something better. They don't realize there's another kingdom. They don't realize that they could be free. They don't realize that they could escape the power that they're in. They don't realize that there's a different master who will love them. And they're just sitting there hopeless. But yet when we tell them of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that we dwell in, and that we once were in their kingdom, and we know how to get from one kingdom to the other, and you need to make that transition, All of a sudden, there's more and more people who say, you know what, I want to escape this. I don't want to be here anymore. And so how can I do it? How can I get to the kingdom that you're in? Well, wonderful, let me answer that question. Let me share with you what Christ has done. Let me share with you that he is the only way for that to happen. But yet we are the ones who need to do that. And so as Jesus has taken us from one to the other, let's just not be content that we've been rescued. Let's be those that spread the word that declare how wonderful Jesus is and his kingdom is, and let this world know that it's for them as well if they'll put their trust in Jesus. The third thing we should do in response to what Jesus has done for us is since Jesus has redeemed us, let's do what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tell us. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Since we've been redeemed by Jesus, remember that word means to be bought, to be purchased. And here we're told we were bought at a price and we already looked at what that price was. The shed blood of Jesus, his own life was given to buy us. But notice this, we're no longer our own. And this is something that we really struggle with, especially here in the West. Oh no, I'm my own. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'll do what I want to do. And we don't want to accept this reality that, you know what, we were slaves to sin and slaves to Satan. And Jesus bought us out of that. He purchased us with his own blood. Not that we could just roam free and do whatever we want, but that we would now be his slaves. He owns us. He bought us. And we we miss this so often. Wait a second, we're no longer our own. It's not me that can just do whatever I want. I am now a child of God. I am now bought by him. And there is now a responsibility that comes with that. And notice what we're told, that we should glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. I know this is a struggle I've had through my Christian life. I think all of us struggle with this reality of saying, you know what, I'm not my own. I'm willing to live for someone else's will. I'm willing to live in someone else's desires. I'm willing to live for God, not myself. That can be a big struggle that we have, but we need to recognize this reality when we think of redemption. Jesus bought you. He bought me. He owns us. We belong to him. And so let's live like it. We say, well, how should I respond to this? Well, respond by not living for yourself. Respond by not going against what he's done, saying, hey, you paid for me. I'm yours. My life's yours. Your will be done, not mine. Let me live for you because of the fact that you gave yourself for me. The fourth thing we should do in response to what Jesus has done for us is to do what Ephesians 4.32 says. And be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Since Jesus has forgiven us of all of our sins, we need to forgive others like we have been forgiven by God. This is another one of those things that can be very difficult for us. And we sit there and we think, well, man, this person has done something that's unforgivable. There's no way I could ever give them forgiveness after how horrible it was or how often it has happened. You know, that's it. It's been a hundred times now. There's no way I'm giving them forgiveness again or or it's just too great of a sin against me. I will not forgive them. And we come to that place, something that's so important for us to remember is what we're looking at here this morning. What did Jesus do in forgiving you? Was there any sin that he wasn't willing to forgive? Was there anything too great that he said, sorry, you've broken the threshold here. If it was under this, I would forgive you. But no, it was too big. So sorry, I can't forgive you. You're going to hell. Or sorry, you've done it too many times. And so you're going to hell. There's not that with his forgiveness. It was complete. And you need to remember what he forgave you of so that when you're tempted to say, you know what, I'm not forgiving this person and I'm justified in not forgiving this person because of how often or how much or how big, you realize, no, I'm called to forgive as Jesus forgave me. A complete forgiveness of others. You know, recently, Jenny and I got done reading the book Unbroken. Some of you might have seen the movie that came out. Actually, there's two movies, one from... uh Angelina Jolie, and then another one from Pure Flix. But uh, it deals with the life of Louis Zamperini and, you know, he's this uh, Olympic athlete, and then he goes down in a plane in World War II. He gets captured by um, the Japanese, and he's horribly tortured, and he doesn't think he's going to make it out. And, you know, it's an amazing story of how he finally, you know, when we win the war, he gets back to America, and everyone's just so happy that he made it through all of that. But he's a horrible alcoholic. The only thing that keeps him going is this... Anger that he wants to get back to Japan to kill the people who tortured him. That's his drive in life. That's all he's living for. He's just full of this hate. He's full of retribution. I just want to get vengeance for what they did. And then he goes to a Billy Graham crusade. He gets saved. His life is transformed. He realizes the forgiveness that God offers to him. And he does make it to Japan, but not to kill all the people that tortured him. But to go to these prisons where these men are now in for war crimes, and he's able to forgive them, he's able to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because of what God had did in his life. And there's that trance, there's that change, and I think, you know, for us, this is such an important thing to happen. Someone said this about forgiveness. We are most like beasts when we kill. We're most like men when we judge. We're most like God when we forgive. You know, I think this world is in desperate need of knowing they can be forgiven of their sins. And as believers, we need to be those who demonstrate the forgiveness of Jesus to show that there is such thing as forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. As Peter comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, should we forgive forgiven seven times when someone does something to us thinking I'm being really generous? And Jesus' response is no, 70 times seven. And he's ultimately speaking of just continue to forgive. No matter how many times they do it, always be that person who forgives and forgives and forgives because that's what I do for you and I desire you to forgive others like I do. So one of the great ways that we can respond to what Jesus has done in forgiving our sins is demonstrate it to others. Let others see that forgiveness as well. Jesus has done amazing things for us. And as we've looked at, Colossians is really speaking of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, and we see it in all four of these things. We see it in his deliverance of us. We see it in him transferring us into his kingdom. We see it in his redemption. We see it in his forgiveness. It just shows that he is supreme. It shows that he is sufficient, that all of this is possible because of him. We couldn't get out, but since he's supreme, he made it possible. And since he's sufficient, is something that is enough for us to escape what we were once had, and it's so wonderful for us. But we should respond by accepting Him and by doing these four things that we've looked at tonight and many more as well. I mean, there should be a real recognition of who He is and what He's done, and I want to now live for Him because of it. Let's pray.